What is the difference between an Olympic runner and an ordinary individual? What's the difference between an Olympic runner and an ordinary individual? This might be the easiest quiz I've ever given you. Uh, some of you perhaps can think of lists of things that separate someone like an Olympic runner and an ordinary person, an average Joe. Uh, but what if we change the question to say something like, what is the difference between two infants, one that will become an Olympic runner and one that will not? What is the difference between them? Now, there may be some differences in the environment that they live in, for example, the kind of family that they are born into, uh, where they live geographically, and perhaps the time in history that they live. All, all of these things can shape uh, who a child grows up to be. But really, we have to acknowledge that there's not a huge difference between the two, as neither of them can even walk yet. Uh, kids first learn to crawl before they learn to stand up and then begin walking. And they get really good at crawling before they do that. Uh, they start to move pretty quickly. When they first stand, they're shaky. They fall down a lot. They move very slowly. Uh, so it's not uncommon when a child is going through this kind of growth, uh, they have the ability to stand, but they're a little afraid to move and take steps forward. So they often just default to sitting down and crawling across the room instead of just taking steps one after the other, which seems counterproductive a little bit, uh, doesn't it? If you have the ability to walk, why would you go back to crawling? Well, imagine as an adult, after learning to walk, having to go back to crawling all the time. This is a strange image, I know. Uh, but I think it helpfully communicates just what an inconvenience and, frankly, how silly of a thing that would be. Well, that's a little bit uh, what it would be like spiritually for the Galatians, who Paul, the apostle, writes to, to resort back to the law after coming to faith in Christ. And he says it would be like going backwards uh, in many ways. Uh, Paul uses a similar illustration to the one I just used in our text this morning, to say that all are under the law, or all who are under the law, are equally cursed, just like infants cannot walk, whether or not one will become an Olympic runner and one will not. It's only after Christ has redeemed us that we are made completely different. We move to a whole new stage of development spiritually since Christ has come into the world. In Christ, the Galatians have received something much greater, and so it would be foolish to return to the old way. It would be no, of no advantage. Well, the same could be said of us today. To rely on our own works, our own good deeds, or our works of the law would be of no advantage to us. It would be folly, in fact. Well, go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Galatians. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4 verses 1 through 7. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you can find our text on page 974. 974. Uh, it's been a while since we started the book, uh, so let me just recap briefly and provide a summary of uh, the book as a whole. Galatians is what's called an epistle, a kind of genre. It's just a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to churches in the region of Galatia, a Roman province. Uh, that Paul would have visited along one of his missionary journeys. 
Uh, and these Christians that he's writing to, it seems like, uh, were, were those that were led to faith in Christ because of Paul's preaching. Uh, he mentions uh, the gospel that he preached to them first uh, that brought them to faith. And the reason he brings it up is because they appear to be departing from that message of the gospel. The message uh, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Uh, what happened was Jews were coming from Jerusalem. Uh, they are called Judaizers. Paul calls them false brothers in chapter 2. And they were telling these new Gentile converts that they had to follow the law in order to be considered children of God. Uh, in other words, Paul says they were adding to the gospel and therefore following a whole other gospel completely. They didn't just believe in faith in Jesus. They believed in faith in Jesus plus law observance, uh, which is very important. It may not sound like that big of a deal uh, to us, but if you've been studying the book as we've been walking through it, you'll know that this is a very big deal. Uh, Paul does not let this kind of thing slide. He says to return to subjection of the law is to regard Christ's death as meaningless. In fact, it's to nullify the grace of God, he says. It was a great danger for Christians in Paul's day, and I would say it's a great danger for us as well, because we not only uh, place our confidence in something uh, other than Jesus, the Son of God, but misunderstanding the gospel causes us to lead others astray as well. It sterilizes our witness to the world. Now, this is why Paul has spent uh, over an entire chapter now parsing out the difference between relying on works, works of the law, and relying on promise. Uh, that's the contrast that he's brought up through chapter 3. He said at the end of chapter 3 that those who have put, their, put, have put on Christ are no longer under the supervision, the guardianship of the law, they have instead received the promise of Abraham's offspring, making us heirs according to promise. Well, that pretty much brings us to our text this morning. Uh, there is a new chapter division, uh, but Paul is very much continuing this argument. So let's read our text together now. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. These verses uh, follow directly after the previous section. But Paul is continuing the discussion about why God's promise is superior to the law. And especially what we talked about last week, the law's inability to save you or to make you righteous before God. We boiled it down to a basic question. And that question was, can you earn God's favor? Can you earn God's favor by doing good things? 
And the answer is an emphatic no. The summary is, if the law was intended to give life, then it would make us more righteous. But in reality, it actually reveals us to be more sinful than we realized. The law is like a mirror into the idolatry of our heart. It exposes our sin and points to our need for a Savior, for our need of a righteousness outside of ourselves because it's not found within ourselves. The law doesn't give us righteousness any more than an x-ray machine mends broken bones that it reveals. But God's promise of Abraham's offspring does. Now, these verses articulate that there are basically two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are enslaved to the elementary principles, and there are those who have been adopted into the family of God. So the main idea for, this, for these verses is this. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to the world. Through Christ, we are spirit-filled sons of God. I'll say that again. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to the world. Through Christ, we are spirit-filled sons of God. I think you'll see that as we look at three critical themes of the gospel in this text. Now, there are three critical themes in Scripture, but in this text in particular. And the first theme is slavery in verses 1 through 3. Slavery, point one. Paul is describing what things were like before Jesus came into the world. And we can tell that by what he says in verse 3 after giving an illustration. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, meaning before believing in Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's describing those who don't know Christ either presently or prior to Jesus' coming while still under the law. He's describing uh, the B.C. days before Jesus entered any of our lives. And what he basically says is that in those days we were enslaved. Uh, Paul talks about this idea of being slaves to sin or slaves to the flesh often across his letters. But listen to the way he says it in Romans 6, verses 15 through 18. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, friends, the, Bible's teach, the Bible teaches us that we are slaves to the things that we love because we serve the things that we love. So if you love money, for example, you'll be a slave to it. Because your desires and your emotions, your security will all be bound up in it and depend on it. You'll be a slave to money because you'll only look to it for happiness. Now this is true, I think, no matter the sin uh, you pick. Uh, I just use money as an example because Jesus himself said that you can't serve two masters uh, when he spoke about money. He said, you will either love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's true for any sin. We were created by a holy God who demands our worship and our praise and all of our affections. 
He is due all glory and honor and praise. But when we sin, we choose to gratify ourselves over Him. We serve ourselves when we give ourselves over to our own desires. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So in our sin, we earn for ourselves eternal death. And the just punishment for our sin is carried out by God in hell for eternity. Well, this is the slavery that the world was hurled into when Adam and Eve sinned, our first parents in the garden. From the first sin came a sinful nature causing all of mankind to rebel against God. And this is the slavery that we cannot free ourselves from. This is the unrighteousness that we cannot be, that, that cannot be cleansed or covered up by our own efforts or our own good deeds. That's not exactly clear what Paul means when he says the elementary principles of the world. Uh, so many have speculated about what he means. Some have said maybe he's talking about the elements fire, water, uh, wind, earth. Uh, Others have said there's spiritual warfare at play in mind when he says this. But the clearest understanding is that he's simply describing the state of spiritual darkness. Ephesians 2, for example, says that before Christ, we were all children of wrath, following the course of the world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If you look down a few verses to Galatians 4, verse 9, you'll see he uses that same phrase to denote worldly living. Jesus himself told the Pharisees in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is slave to sin. He also told them in that same chapter that they were not sons of Abraham, but sons of the devil, after they boast in their ethnic connection to him. Paul's essentially saying that those who received or obeyed the law were equally needy when it came to God's favor. The Jews who inherited the law needed to believe in Abraham's promises, just like Gentiles who did not have the law. Prior to Christ, all were under the curse. The highest religious rank possible would not place one on higher ground than pagan peasants, in other words. That's what he says in verse 1 that the heir to a great inheritance is no different than a slave prior to receiving the inheritance. He says that even though the heir is the owner, he's not in charge of anything yet. Functionally, he has no more authority or claim than even the slave does. They're both, in fact, under guardians or managers until the set day arrives. The child is under the watch or supervision of another until the proper time. And that time specifically is set by God the Father. I think Paul's example could be stated another way. What good is it to be an heir prior to receiving the inheritance? The answer is it's no good. Your bank account is the same as not receiving it at all. It's no different from anyone else. You have no more wealth than the hired hand. No more ownership over the property, for example. You're not free to do whatever you want because you both serve someone watching over you. And so it was before Christ. All were imprisoned by the law and in need of grace. Despite being the son or the owner, the son is in the same position as the slave until the appointed time. The law did not give the inheritance to the heir. 
the law was not a form of the inheritance. It was merely a guardian. It was something that took care of him for a time, something that regulated the heir for a season until the time that the inheritance would arrive. In the same way, the law did not add anything to us. It was not supposed to give us righteousness, as we've said, or, uh, or to save us, but to point us to the one who can give us that. This means, friends, that apart from Christ, all are enslaved to their sinful and fallen nature. All are servants to sin and not to God. It doesn't mean we don't know how to do good things or that we don't do good things, but it means we don't have the ability to be perfect. We don't have the ability to do good things because our hearts are darkened. And the law doesn't do anything to improve the condition of our hearts. As Paul mentioned, the law was given to correct us and to prevent us from sinning even more. But it does not earn us any favor in God's eyes. We can't cancel out the sin in our lives by doing good things. Therefore, all people apart from Christ are subject to the wrath of God, who will judge justly, and all are guilty according to God's commands for humanity. So what can we make of this? Uh, Two brief points of application for us today. One, we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. We must regularly remind ourselves to be humble, knowing that it's not because of any good in us that we are saved. It's not because we made better choices in life. It's not because we're more educated than some, especially in the realm of religion. Theological knowledge alone does not save us. I think we need this application because we are just so prone, in, uh, prone to trusting in our own intellect. But a healthy view of our sin and our need of freedom in the gospel removes the deceit of thinking that we're better than we are. We are ever dependent on God's grace. It heals us from the poison of trusting in ourselves. The way to approach God is not to stand tall above others, but to make ourselves low. A second point of application, prioritize the gospel to others over character improvement or behavioral modification. The primary need of others is not character change, but the gospel of Jesus. Now, it's true that character change or uh, changing to healthy habits can improve one's life, Uh, That's true, they can benefit someone a great deal, but we often get caught uh, trying to address symptoms uh, rather than treating the disease itself. Uh, For those who don't know the gospel of grace, uh, they must hear the good news uh, from us who believe in it. The first critical theme in these verses is slavery. The second theme is redemption in verses 2 and 4, redemption. Paul refers to Christ's coming as the fullness of time. The fullness of time. That's that's an expression that Jesus actually used. Jesus used the exact same word himself in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. They're the first words out of his mouth in that gospel account. Jesus had just been baptized by John and then tempted in the wilderness. He comes back to preach his first sermon and he says this, The time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. It has arrived. 
It has reached its fullness. It has been brought to completion. It's a way of saying that Jesus came at the exact moment that God intended him to come. Uh, If there's anything this verse teaches us, it's that God, in his omniscience, appointed the exact moment that Christ would come into the world for a specific purpose. He set the day that he would send his son to be born of a woman and live on earth. It means that Jesus' birth was no accident or coincidence. He was not just a citizen of great moral character that we can learn from. Jesus is much more than that. He's the Son of God sent from the Father into the world with a specific purpose. And that purpose is to redeem those under the law. There are two really important doctrinal fallacies that I think are corrected by this verse uh, that I want you to know about. The first is what's called Arianism. Uh, It was made popular by a man named Arius in the 3rd and 4th century. Uh, uh, And what Arius taught and believed was that the Son did not always exist, but came into existence when he was born. Uh, Meaning Jesus is not of the same essence as the Father, but was actually a created being, a creature. There are many places in the Bible that we could bring up that combat this view. Uh, But I want you to at least see in our passage the clarity that God did not create a son for us. He didn't pick an existing human to anoint with his spirit. No, he simply sent forth his son to us. A Christ who exists eternally into the past and eternally into the future was when the fullness of time arrived at the appointed time sent into the world to be born of a woman. Well, this is crucial to understand because uh, the belief of Arianism removes the deity of Christ. To say he's a created being rather than the same essence of God the Father. It would not be God coming to rescue us for himself and therefore would not fulfill many prophecies. Well, that's the first thing that this verse corrects. Uh, And before I move on to the second, I want to also say a few verses for you to write down to read later. Christ was in the world and with God from the very beginning in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was there at the creation of man in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our own image. In him all things were created, as it says in Colossians 1.18. And ever since that time, God planned to send his Son into the world to take on flesh as a man. He picked and chose the era he would send his son in to be born under the law to, to give to his people in order to redeem them from it. I don't know if you've ever wondered why Jesus came into the world when he did. Uh, I know that I have. Uh, and perhaps this could be a fun lunchtime discussion for you after the service. Uh, there are interesting historical reasons uh, or speculations, I should say, that you can point to uh, to see perhaps why Jesus was born at the specific time that he was, why he didn't come earlier, why he didn't come later. But we have to admit, when we think about questions like that, that we don't really know. We have to admit that God chose not to tell us why he sent Jesus 
when he did. But what he has told us clearly is that he sent Jesus exactly when he intended to. That he appointed the exact time, just like the father setting the time for his son to receive an inheritance. Well, that's the first theological fallacy is Arianism. The second one is similar. It corrects the view that Jesus is just a moral example for us to follow. Those who hold this view, they say things like, you know, not to take away from how amazing or interesting Jesus is, but he simply provided an example for the world. Uh, for how we ought to live. Well, this way of thinking is called exemplarism. Exemplarism. It says that Christ's work is a moral example for how we ought to live, that his death is kind of an illustration for us, teaching us to make sacrifices for others, to put them before ourselves. Well, that idea might sound good and positive, a loving thing in the world, not very offensive, certainly, to others. But friends, it robs Jesus of all his glory. It robs him of his glorious mission given to him by God the Father. It robs him of his identity as the eternal Son of God who came to be our ransom. That word ransom means payment. Jesus himself was the payment for us. You cannot separate the person of Jesus from his work on the cross. To do so would be to create a fantasy. And to be clear, you won't find people on the streets today who say, I'm in, I believe in Arianism or uh, exemplarism. Uh, people don't say those things. But you'll likely find plenty of people who just question the origin of Jesus. Or they think that uh, over time, people have just added to the life and the meaning of Jesus, making him into some kind of legend. Uh, There was a movement in the 90s that tried to reconstruct the historical Jesus because this group of secular scholars decided they knew more about Jesus than those who had family members who lived with him and those who witnessed him himself. Well, that movement has had ripple effects today, I think, in the larger population about how people view Jesus. But God's word is too clear for us to ignore. God appointed a day to send His Son into the world to redeem us from the curse that we were slaves to. And then He did it. Verse 4 says, God sent Jesus to be born of a woman under the law. Uh, Which sounds like a reference to the virgin birth, uh, but it's actually not. Uh, It is true that Jesus was born to a virgin. But what Paul is communicating here, what he's emphasizing, is that Jesus was fully human. He was not a spirit trapped inside a vessel of a body. Jesus himself became a man. He was birthed by a woman after growing in the womb. And it's just as important as Jesus' divinity, his humanity is. If you want the theological term here, scholars refer to the two natures in Christ as the hypostatic union. It's a great mystery in Scripture how Jesus can be both truly God and truly man at the same time, much like uh, the Trinity. These things are hard to contemplate and to reconcile, but we see them both clearly spelled out in Scripture. And in verse 4, Paul's emphasizing Christ's humanity. Why is he doing that? Well, because he would not be able to redeem humanity if he was not part of it. He wouldn't be able to save men if he himself were not a man. 
He wouldn't be able to free us from the law unless he himself subjected himself to it. That's what Paul means when he says Christ was born under the law. He simply means that Jesus himself submitted to and obeyed the law, only he never broke it. Not once did he transgress it. Jesus achieved moral perfection. And in doing so, he's the only one under the law who is innocent and therefore the only one who can actually serve as an appropriate sacrifice or substitute for us. It's because he was truly human that he was tempted in every way as we are, therefore able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, to help us in our time of need. And to be under the law means to be in subjection to it. It's as if Christ understood that in order to legally free someone, you must act within the confines of the justice system that holds them. You have to abide by the legal statute in order to properly free someone from their imprisonment. That's what Jesus did by taking on our human nature. He placed himself under the hammer that should have fallen on us so that we could be saved. So friends, a few points of application for us. Mainly one from verse 4. Meditate on the scriptures. Meditate on the scriptures. There are those whose hearts are hardened when they encounter great mysteries like the hypostatic union or the Trinity. They get frustrated that some things in the Scriptures are, as Peter says, difficult to understand. They accuse God of not being clear enough for them, and they blame Him for their inability to believe in Him. But friends, don't you think that we should expect some kind of complexity from a God that is infinitely powerful and infinitely wise? Don't you think it'd be strange to worship such a simple God that could be understood easily after reading the Bible once. If everything was learnable in a single lifetime. But friends, men and women have been studying the scriptures all throughout history and have not exhausted its wisdom. It's like the cosmos, the end of which we cannot reach. But the further we look, the more we discover. That's true of God's word as well. The more you study it, The more you discover about God and the world and yourself, friends, it is a deep, deep well, the bottom of which we can never reach. Meditate on the scriptures like a driller who just struck oil in a wasteland. We have a tendency to go to the Bible when we feel the need. We feel spiritually parched, perhaps. And when we think we've had our spiritual fill, we go off and then we leave it alone for some time until the next time we feel we're lacking. And imagine striking oil, filling up your car, and then just leaving it there and driving into the wasteland. When someone strikes oil, they drill and they drill and they drill until they've exhausted every last drop. Friends, we should study the Word of God like that. We should continue to draw from it the great riches as we drill and drill and drill. Meditate on the scriptures. That brings us to the third theme in this text, and that theme is adoption. Verses 5 through 7, adoption. There is a beautiful so that in the middle of verse 5. That tells us why Christ redeemed those under the law. It says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I say beautiful because... Jesus 
didn't stop at simply freeing us from the curse of sin. He didn't come only to redeem us from underneath the law, though he could have done that. He would still be infinitely worthy of all praise and honor and glory and thanks. We would still owe to him uh, our service, but he didn't stop there. He not only freed us, but he did so in order that we would be adopted by the Father. Ponder that for a moment. The God of the entire universe, who we sinned and rebelled against, has not only set us free from our bondage by grace, but has brought us into his very home. He signed the adoption papers with his blood. He refers to those who trust in Christ as his children. We know this from the way that Jesus taught us how to pray. What did he say in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven. Adoption is key to the Christian experience. And take note, briefly, that adoption is not something that you can do for yourself, nor is it something that you can convince others to do for you. Adoption is something that happens to you, that someone else does for you, out of your hands completely. John 1, verses 12 and 13 it says, but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A Packer, J.I. Packer, uh, said this about the theme of adoption in his classic book, Knowing God. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Packer said that justification is a primary or fundamental blessing from God, but not the highest one. He said the highest blessing is adoption because of the richer relationship that involves it. Closeness. Affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Brothers and sisters, members of FBC, the Father loves you. Your Heavenly Father loves you and has chosen you out of slavery, called you into His household, called you His children, making you brothers and sisters in the Lord. May it never be said that God is distant and cold while His primary relation to us is as a loving Father. And as a loving Father, He provides for all our needs. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 6? He tells us not to be anxious because the Lord knows our needs and provides for them, just as He does for the birds in the air and the grass in the fields. Paul even reminds the Galatians of the greatest provision given to believers in verse 6, the Spirit of the Son. Just as God sent the Son into the world, so He sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts. How's that for a Trinity formula? God states, Paul states of God that He is one in chapter 3, verse 20, and then here, just a few verses later, he mentions all three persons of that one God 
actively working in salvation. If anyone asks where the Trinity is in the Bible, you can take them to Galatians 4, 6. The Lord provides for us. Even when we don't know our needs, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf, sometimes with groaning too deep for words, as Paul says in Romans 8. But in verse 6, we see that it is Christ's Spirit inside our hearts that enables us to approach God, to approach the throne of grace with a relational term rather than an impersonal one. Apart from His adoption, we would not be able to relate to God in such an intimate way. I love what Luther said here. He said, There is no slavery in Christ, but only sonship. There's no slavery in Christ, but only sonship. He said, My obedience can prove that I'm a servant, but not that I'm a son. My sonship is placed entirely upon the redemption accomplished by the Son of God. God's Spirit confirms this by enabling me to call God Father. Servants can only say Lord, but sons are able to say Abba, Father. So friends, a few points of application for us before we close. First, we never have to doubt God's love for us. If you are a child of God, you are loved by Him. He's already demonstrated His love for you by sending His Son to die on your behalf. He's softened your heart to the gospel and given eternal life. But Paul says that nothing in this life can separate us from His love. So no matter where life takes you, you can be confident God loves you because He's adopted you into His family. And we not only have, don't have to doubt, but we'll never have to earn His love either. He loves us because we are His, not because we obey. We obey because He loves us and because we love Him. But my love for my children, similarly, does not depend on what they do for me. My love for my kids does not depend on what they do for me. Elias and Cassie, they will never have to earn my love. Nothing that they can do or say will make me stop loving them. And friends, if that is true of an imperfect and fallen father like myself, with finite emotions and feelings, if that's true with someone like me, then just imagine the love of God in heaven for us. We don't need to try to earn His love. We simply need to accept it by trusting in Christ. A second point of application, trust Him as your Father and provider. Parents uh, know this well. You know what it's like to look out for your kids, even when they don't understand what's good for them. They may disagree with your instruction or your rules, not understanding the greater good. It's a struggle sometimes to instruct kids in a way that you know is good for them, uh, when all they do is fight that instruction. God's the same way. He does not give commands to control us or to restrict us. He wants what's best for us. He knows exactly what that is. That's why we obey God's commands out of love and trust, knowing He knows more than we do. Brothers and sisters, trust in God to provide for your needs. Are you nervous about finding the right job? about covering finances. He will provide. Are you nervous about how your kids will grow up? 
whether or not they will believe in Jesus, he will sustain your faith. Do you fear being alone the rest of your life? You will not be. Your heavenly Father will never leave you or forsake you. And he's put the spirit of his Son inside your heart. To add on to that, God will never abandon those whom he has adopted. We get tempted, and I think Satan uses uh, our guilt to try to, draw, to try to draw us away from God by telling us that God no longer loves us because of our sin. But friends, on this side of the cross, certainly your sin is not as great as when your heart was completely darkened before the Spirit opened your eyes to believing in Jesus. And if you, He loved us then, while we were sinners, certainly He continues to love us after choosing to adopt us. He would not turn away His love from someone who has His Spirit in their hearts. Paul summarizes everything in verse 7. Do you see how foolish it would be to trust in your own works while God has adopted you in love through the death of His Son. How foolish it would be for the Galatians or any of us to rely on anything other than Christ's blood for our justification and the Holy Spirit for our adoption. But because we've been adopted and filled with His Spirit, we can call God our Father. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to the world. Through Christ, we are Spirit-filled sons of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you not only rescued us from our sin, but you have brought us into your own household. You have called us sons and daughters. You have sent Christ's Spirit into our hearts, and so we can pray with Jesus our Father who is in heaven. Oh, help us to trust in your provisions for us. Uh, help us to trust in your goodness and your mercy and your love to us. We know that you who adopted us before the foundations of the world were laid will carry us into eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.